The text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. Luke 2, 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just ask now that you help us see what you're like as we look at these verses, as we uh, imagine what it must have been like as Christ is born into this world and Shepherds, hear this news first. Lord, I pray that you give us a love for the things you choose to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the same text we looked at last week. Last week we looked at uh, the message uh, or the song the angels were singing as they were glorifying God uh, and glorifying Him that there can be peace on earth with those with whom God is pleased. Uh, we're going to take a little more holistic look at the text uh, this morning. And we're going to look at it asking the question. This is how we should read our Bibles, I think. What is God like? In light of this text, what is He like? Uh, if you're going to explain to someone what a person is like, one of the best ways you're going to describe to them what they're like, the way you know what they're like, is by the decisions people make, the choices uh, they make. You can learn a lot about a person by considering what they choose to do, how they choose to spend their time, what types of books they choose to read, what types of shows they choose to watch, what sort of hobbies they choose to do, what sort of words they 
choose to use. All these choices tell us, this is how we're going to describe to someone, this is what this person's like. And so as we come to this text, we're going to look at all these decisions God makes when He sends Christ to this earth. The pinnacle of history, what does God decide to do? How does He decide to do it? And what does this tell us about himself. This is common if you look at the Old Testament and read the prophets, and they're describing what God is like in comparison to idols. Uh, they often point to God's freedom to choose to do what He wants to do. And I want to begin by showing you one of these texts. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 46. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible and one of the most defining chapters for my understanding of who God is and what God is like. Isaiah 46. Isaiah is in the middle of a mocking session of the idolatry of Israel's day in the nation Babylon. And there's two gods they worship, two big gods that they put up, two idols, Bel and Nebo. And here's how he starts in verse 1. He says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are bird are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. The picture is this. Here's their idols, these made out of gold. They're these stooping livestock idols that are really heavy. They're a burden for beasts, for ox to carry around and to move. And, and so the picture Isaiah's painting is this. Look at the pathetic nature of these idols you worship, which are a pain to you. If you want to move them, you have to hire beasts. You got to go get gold, pay to have beasts carry them from one place to another. They're a burden on people. And then in verse 3, he says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me, that means carried by me, from before your birth, carried from your womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. He's saying, Look at me, Israel. Before you were born, I was taking care of you to your old age, to the end of your life, you don't have to carry me around. I carry you around. And then he says, verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me an equal and compare me what that, uh, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god? Then they fall down and worship. 
They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now here's what he's about to do. He's about to explain what God is like. He's already shown that God is eternal before they're even born. God is carrying them. He's already shown that He's alive and He can help in trouble when the idolatry of Babylon can't help, has no power. But here's how He describes God. Verse 10, I am God, there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. All the doings of the world are declared out of the mouth of God. From the beginning to the end, God declares the things that are done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Someone might say, okay, yes. God's plans will be accomplished. His doings will be accomplished. Like what his prophets say, what, what he plans to do kind of religiously among people. Maybe God plans that, but what about everything? Even the little things? Look at, look at what he says here. He says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from the far country. The littlest, tiniest bird from the east, I declare what happens with that bird and the man of my counsel, my prophet. I'm the one who declares this. I have spoken. I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed. I'll do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. When the prophet wanted to explain what God is like, One of the main things he pointed to is God does whatever he wishes and what he declares comes to pass. That's what it means to be God. To be sovereign over my flat tire this morning, 24 degrees below zero. God's sovereign over that. Someone might say, well, I don't believe that. God wouldn't do things like that. Well, God isn't about Sam Ellison's kingdom. He's about His kingdom. He's about His purposes. He's about His glory. And what it means to be God is He speaks and it comes to pass and it's for so that His purposes would be. And so as we come to this text and we look at how God decides to bring His Son into the world and how God decides to save humanity, we learn 
about our God, what He is like. So my prayer is, is that all of us would have childlike wonder and rather than stumble over the way God does the things He does, we would rather worship Him for it. So there's seven wonders in this text, I think, where we can, and I'm sure there's more, but these are the ones I saw. Wonder at God's chosen audience. Look at Luke 2, starting in verse 8. This is after we're told about the birth of Christ. We're told, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So this is a picture I know you've imagined because it's talked about at Christmas time on a cold winter's night uh, near Bethlehem. There's shepherds out in the fields. Now here's what we know. Shepherds in uh, this area were out in the fields between March and November. There's nothing in the Bible that gives us any clue as to the date of Christ's birth. Uh, it's really unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, it, it seems like it would be between March and November. Nothing in the Scripture uh, shows us where Christ's birth date was. But when shepherds were out in the field, God decided to choose them to be the recipients of this amazing uh, message. <laughs> the message mankind has been waiting for from the beginning of the found, uh, ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, Robert Stein says this about the shepherds. He says, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest, according to Jewish uh, writings, and unclean according to the standards of the law, they represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. When you think of God's choice, He could set this on display before millions to see. He could put it up in the sky. He chooses shepherds. You know, as, as I try to think about, well, what would a shepherd have been like? Well, they probably would have stunk. It'd be like maybe a hired hand of our day that works with cattle or pigs all day long. Uh, maybe they didn't have all their teeth. Maybe they weren't very smart. Maybe the people really didn't take their opinion as anything that great. You wouldn't suspect that great wisdom were going to come from the shepherds, but I want you to wonder at what your God is like when He decides to reveal the birth of His Son to shepherds. That tells us something about what our God is like, and it's consistent with what Mary prophesied in her song. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 52, 
she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God loves picking the nobodies of the world, choosing the nobodies of the world to show them his glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, only the humble believe in him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair. That he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders. God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as His instruments and performs His wonders where one would least expect Him. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemingly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Our God is not ashamed by lonely lowliness. Rather, He breaks right into Humanity becomes a man. That's what's being announced by the shepherds, as we're going to see in a moment. So God chooses the lowly. He loves those who are neglected. So many, I think, and maybe many of you here, think God won't use me. Why would God be close to me? Look at my sin. Look at my lack of gifts. Look at all this. And yet, the God of the Bible draws near to those who are nothing in the eyes of the world. Those in the world try to hide their sin and put their righteousness on display. But God draws close to those who admit their weakness and their need and who they are. That's who God draws near to. So wonder at God's chosen audience. Second, wonder at God's chosen message. Look at verse 10. And the angels said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, I just want to consider the nature of the message. It's described as good news of great joy. It's the word gospel in verb form. The angel came, in a sense, and was good newsing the shepherd, telling them good news of great joy. One of the things we learn about God is God is happy, He's joyous. He has joy. He's full of joy, in fact. In Matthew 25, uh, 23, the parable of the talents, what we're told about the faithful servants, here's what Jesus says, His Master said to Him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. In Luke 15, 7, <clears throat> he, uh, 
Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What what Luke puts on display is those who think they're good, those who think they're righteous, those who want to display their righteousness before God in heaven. Heaven is not impressed by that. Heaven doesn't find joy in that. But it's when the sinner, the person who knows who they are, is broken in repentance, that's when heaven rejoices. The prodigal son. Uh, if you remember the story, the older brother is, is upset that the father wants to kill the fatted calf. The brother says, I'm better. I've never done anything wrong like he has. He spent all your money on prostitutes. And on wild living, you're going to kill the fattened calf and celebrate and have this joyous party. He doesn't want to be there for the party. And the very end of that passage, the father says to the older brother, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All throughout Luke chapter 15, here's what you find. God is joyous in heaven. There is a, there is parties going on all the time because sinners are always repenting. Uh, Jesus in John 15, 11, uh, says this to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus has fullness of joy. What we learn about God in this passage in the nature of the message is that God is a joyous God. Third, uh, wonder at God's chosen Savior. Here's Here's what the good news is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we could spend months on this passage. What we're being told in verse 11 is that Christ the Lord, God, is born into this world. The incarnation. God becoming man. Now, I don't know how sharp your mind is and how good your childlike wonder is or how much time you've spent being awed at what it means that God takes on human flesh. But I want to help you by uh, giving you three quotes from very sharp men who have thought about this maybe harder than you have. Here's what they had to say about it. Uh, One commentator says this, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the Creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Let me just read that again. The incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the Creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. 
when God decides to save human beings, He becomes a human being. Not only a human being, He comes as a baby in swaddling cloths. <laughs> now, God comes to us. He knows our weakness. <laughs> he knows our feeble minds. And He comes and He shows us who He is in the most humble way. Here's what Augustine of Hippo says, the one of the great church fathers. He says, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. J.I. Packer says this, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. So, wonder at God's chosen Savior. Our God is absolutely, out of this world, wonderful. You can't get to the end of the wonder of that type of humility that He chose to take upon Himself and reveal that He is. Number four, wonder at God's chosen destination of arrival. Here's the shepherds are given a sign. This is consistent with when an angel appears to bring a message. Uh, the angel appears, the glory of God appears around them. Those who are recipients respond with fear. Then usually there's a sign given that whatever is spoken is going to come to pass. And here's what we read in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So wonder at God's destination of arrival. God decided not only that He would come break into humanity as a little baby in diapers needing to be cared for, but that the place He would be born would be where animals live and where they eat is where the child is going to be placed. Here's where you're going to find the Christ. Here's where you're going to find the Savior. Here's where you're going to find God lying in a feeding trough. Wonder at the choices of our God. You would not choose what God chooses. Yet it's worthy he is worthy to be worshipped for His 
humility and <laughs> revealed in the destination of where his child would enter the world. Five, wonder at God's chosen choir. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. So God chose to reveal this to the lowest class of human beings in the region and only a few. And he chooses to reveal to them the worship of heaven. What does heaven think about this moment in history? There was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Heaven's angels are singing as the time, the fullness of time has finally come. The angels are amazed at what God does with rebellious human beings on the face of the earth. They know how to respond. They know that they need to worship God. Heaven's joy was made visible and audible to the shepherds. Six, and here's where we're going to spend the most of our time, wonder at God's chosen song. We hinted at this a little bit last week. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. What are the angels singing about? Here's the thing. What the Bible reveals as glorious, man often stumbles over and doesn't see as glorious. Where man gets upset and says that's wrong, often the Bible says that's worthy of worship. And the angels are praising God that there's peace on earth with those whom God is pleased with. That means not with everybody. God is pleased with those who are found in Christ. And the question we need to ask is, so how is someone found in Christ? Is there, is there a bunch of good people on the face of the earth that finally the good people have somebody to believe in and the bad people will reject Him? In that case, the angel's song would be, Glory to God in highest and praise God, the good people are going to be revealed. But what is praised by the angels is God's choice, God's selection of those whom will have peace. And that's where man stumbles. That's where man says, That's not fair. I would do it different. And yet, Later in Luke, and by the way, all my commentaries agree. That's what this text says. I'll give you two examples. Leon Morris says, the angels are saying that God will bring peace for men on whom His favor rests. There is an emphasis on God, not on man. And uh, Daryl Box says this, the praise of the heavenly host offers honor to God and peace to men on whom His favor rests. The last phrase is not a declaration of universal salvation, but refers to those 
who are the special objects of God's grace. They are the saved or the elect, those whom God has bestowed the favor of his grace. Now, here's the choice you have to make. You create a God in your own image or you worship the God that comes to you in the Scripture. You might say, well, I think that's bad. Well, all right, create yourself a God that's different than this God. Or you can worship the God that the Bible reveals to us. This is what Jesus did. You might think Jesus is odd. In Luke 10, 17, Jesus sends out the 72 to go heal, do miracles, cast out demons. <clears throat> and here's what it says when they return. Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. They're praising God. Look at the power we had. We cast out demons. And Jesus says, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning. You think it's cool casting demons out. You ought to see Satan fall. But he says, don't rejoice in that. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then he says, it says in that same hour, he rejoiced. Only two times in all the Bible we're told Jesus rejoiced. What does he find joy in? Here's one of them. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You want to know what the angels are excited about? God's sovereign choice to give grace to some. You want to know what Jesus is excited about? The hardening of and blinding of some people's eyes to the truth and the opening of the eyes of little children. And Jesus rejoices and calls it grace. Thus is your gracious will. And then Jesus says, you want to know who's going to know me? All that the Father gives me. And He says, and to those whom I reveal Myself. That's who will choose the Son. Whoever the Son chooses to reveal Himself too. So, it runs into man's will. It runs into man's supposed sovereignty, does it not? And yet, this is what the angels worship. This is what Christ loves. I want to take you to Romans chapter 9 and, and really just get to the central place 
where this is put on display. Romans 9, uh, starting in verse 6. And I want to ask you the question as to what does Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, seek to put on display in this passage? Paul has just said that he would he would go to hell so that the Jews would believe. His heart's so broken that the Jews are not trusting in Christ, in, in their Savior. And the question on the table is, well, maybe God's promises failed. Maybe the Jews, because they rejected the Christ, actually won't be saved and God's promises failed. Well, here's what he says, verse 6, Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham are, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So not every physical descendant of Abraham is a child of Abraham, but through Isaac. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, so remember the children of the flesh is Abraham and Sarah scheming that he will sleep with Hagar and actually have a son. That's the children of the flesh. The children of the promise, God says, no, that's not who I'm picking. I'm not picking Ishmael. I'm picking Isaac. It's according to the promise. And then he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah, so this is Isaac's wife, so Isaac is the promised child, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born or and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So Isaac is the child of promise, and his one wife has twins in her womb, just so God can highlight, it's not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise, before they're born, before they did anything good or bad, God chose one over the other to put his choice and his election on display. That's what it says in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, Paul knows where man's going to stumble. This seems unfair. By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power to you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, 
why does he still find fault? Now, some people will say at verse 18, well, he, what God does is he looks ahead and he finds the good people of faith and that's who he elects. That's who he chooses. Well, if that were true, none of these questions make sense because he says, the very thing he says then is he says, um, um, why does he still find fault? If God chose the good ones, then there would be no fault to be found in God. But Paul knows that this is going to bother human sovereignty, human will. The fact that God is God and they are not. And then he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? We see God put on display His choice lifted up. At the end of Romans 9 and verse 30, here's how he concludes. What, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. So imagine, you're a Jew, you spend your whole life thinking you're, you're going to be good enough because you're chosen, you're special, you're not like the Gentiles, you have the law, you're striving for the law. And now, Paul's saying the Gentiles are getting in. Are you kidding me? You want to talk about ticking people off. What shall we say then that the Gentiles that did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, the righteousness is by faith but that Israel who pursued the law who would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, stum a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the big question is this. Do you stumble over the God of the Bible so that you have to create your own God? The Jews stumbled over Christ. The fact that God would choose to save Gentiles, not according to keeping the law, but according to them simply trusting by faith. And we find in other parts of Scripture that that's by grace. God he who began a good work will bring it to completion. God even creates the faith. Do you stumble over what the angels sing about and over what Jesus rejoices in? Or are you happy about this wonderful God who acts in ways contrary to what you would expect? Man... I got some really good verses here that we don't have time to look at. Um, I'm going to show you two of them. Acts 13.47, right after Paul and Barnabas preached. Here's what we read. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's who believed. Those who were appointed to eternal life. 
way at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when the beast is given authority on the earth and all the earth is worshiping the beast except one group of people. Here's what we read. Revelation 13.5 And all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The only ones in the end that aren't worshiping the beast are those whom before the foundation of the earth, names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Wonder at the song the angels sing. And finally, wonder at God's new chosen messengers and worshipers. So God brought this good news through an angel and He had angels singing. But here's what we read in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. So the angels go away and then the shepherds said, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Don't you love it? Now the shepherds are teaching the mother of the one who gave birth to the Christ more about her child. The messenger are now the shepherds letting them know this great news that of great joy that they have. And then it says, uh, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. That's the appropriate response. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now those who had received this message from angels are those preaching the message and the angels that were singing are now the shepherds who are now worshiping and singing. How God decided to bring Christ into this world tells us so much about the heart of our God and what He loves. He loves humility. We see His own humility on display. So I want you to ponder God's choices and wonder at the unhindered freedom of His joyous humility. The shocker is this. God can do whatever He wants. He's not restrained by anything. And He chooses humility for himself and not only does he choose humility he doesn't say okay i guess i'm gonna come take on flesh i'm gonna that's that's not how he does it uh elizabeth elliott says this and here's here's what i want to leave you with elizabeth elliott the wife of jim elliott who gave his life um uh witnessing to a violent tribe he was speared to death 
His wife says this, Jesus loved the will of His Father. He embraced the limitations of the Incarnation, the necessities, the conditions, the very chains of His humanity as He walked and worked here on earth, fulfilling moment by moment His divine commission and the stern demands of His Incarnation. There was... Never was there a word or even a look of complaint. Not only was Jesus humble by taking on flesh, but He never complained once. In light of all the suffering, God His Father, His will was to send Him to come and suffer. And Jesus joyously joyously took on all that pain, all that suffering, so that you and I can have the hope of salvation. Jesus was born, came to this earth, lived perfectly under the law without sin. Though He lived a perfect life, loved people perfectly, He was rejected, He was hated by man, And He was killed on a cross, which was God's sovereign plan. It's the only way you and I could be saved. What we lack is a perfect life lived under the law. Jesus lived it on our behalf. And you can have His life as a gift if you'll trust in Him by faith. You see, you hand Jesus something, your sin, and He hands you something, His perfect life. And because of God's love and His humility, we can be recipients of that love. And the crazy thing is, is once you trust in Christ, you and I can actually joyously humble ourselves and serve other people and do the will of God and not complain about it. Not perfectly, but we actually can be changed at a heart level so that we can be more like this God. And I can tell you something. If you live that way, if you make choices the world would never make and they can't see what good is in it for you, it's only serving other people, they're going to wonder the same way we wonder as we look at God and the way He showed grace to us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that You grant us a childlike heart that rather than rail against what you decide to do in your choices and think how we'd do it different, Lord, I pray you'd make us like a Christ and be thankful for your will, your choices. Lord, thank you for those of us who are trusting in Christ Thank You for being gracious to us and opening our eyes that we might cling and treasure Christ. Lord, for those here who find Christ boring and find You boring, Lord, I pray that You might have mercy on them, that they would see that Jesus is their only hope, that they would see Your love and Your kindness and Your grace. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.